you, you are likely aware there is a growing body of research that suggests human brains are being rewired by our interface with technology. Parents are learning about this at their children's schools as teachers negotiate the issues of information bombardment, the crush of electronic communication, and the struggle for deep, sustained, focused learning. Studies indicate that ever greater access to information bits is inversely proportional to depth of knowledge and developing wisdom. We seem to be swapping out an ability for sustained focus for adaptive information gathering, which some researchers describe as a mental surface activity. Some years ago, uh, a famous Atlantic Monthly article captured the negative side of this idea entitled, Is Google Making Us Stupid? Underscoring this question, we're now in the throes of a texting while driving addiction. The statistics are startling. Over 2.5 million people in the U.S. are involved in road accidents each year, and one out of four are specifically caused by texting. Texting and driving is six times more likely to get you in an accident than drunk driving. Did you know that? It's actually safer for someone to get wasted and get behind the wheel of the car than to text and drive. These statistics put the lie to the idea that we are all excellent multitaskers. Fact is, we're much smarter doing one thing at a time with complete focus. Emerging from the recent election cycle, I realized that I had been devouring much more media than I used to and yet didn't feel any smarter for it. In retrospect, I think it made me less thoughtful about what I was watching and reading. I've now cut consciously way back, re-engaging books I've let languish, among other activities. It's kind of a relief, actually. And as we're discovering, one of the problems of all this information surfing concerns our decreasing ability to sort fact from fiction. We can't or simply won't stop to ponder whether the latest wacky theory actually holds water. And you know... (laughs) Some Sunday mornings, I can't decide whether all the stuff we do in here adds or detracts from the problem of sensory overload. Sometimes it feels oddly surreal to dress up in robes and process into an ornate building, lighting candles, ringing bells, singing sentimental carols, and an age awash in technological wizardry and cultural overstimulation. But... But mostly, I would say, this spiritual activity seems an act of quiet rebellion, even revolution, on behalf of what 
really matters most. Hard to say what perspective any given person brings who walks through these doors at this time of year. None of us knows what particular bits of information predominate for any other person who shares our pew or what they're thinking about while sitting here. Are you mostly focused or mostly distracted? Have you ever noticed that little announcement at the top of your worship program that says, please turn off all your electronic devices? It would be fun to see a show of hands of those who have actually done that. Because, of course, I see you texting. (laughs) Of course, not so much is at stake sitting in a pew compared with behind the wheel of a car. But you know it's true. You know you're not the brilliant multitasker you think you are. Your brain cannot retain a depth of knowledge, wisdom, or experience doing three things at once. So, so I invite you to name your multiple preoccupations and then set them aside for the next few minutes. Allow yourself the luxury of scaling back your attention to a small event with an improbable meaning. It concerns an illegitimate pregnancy in an inconsequential backwater town among poor, simple people, just the sort of people who are the first to be affected by the machinations of the powerful, just the sort of inconsequential people we'd quickly overlook as we scan the web or the tube or the stores. The old story has the added burden of being overly familiar. You know the basic characters and plot lines, sort of. You remember roughly how it begins and how it ends. You recall certain details with greater clarity than others, angels and shepherds and so on. But these bits of details are clearer than a deep, profound understanding of their collective meaning, and that's because to get to that point, you'd have to be quiet and still and not distracted to let it sink way down in. Today we'll drill down to one particular character who gets a top billing. This is interesting. Can you imagine a a blockbuster movie and one of the lead characters has nothing to say? Joseph has no lines. He's an enigma, really. But to really hear this bit of the story, we have to shift gears from the day's preoccupations, from the thraldom of a thousand distractions. We need to shift our thinking down to just one, one vulnerable man of the disposable masses, Joseph, the cuckolded fiancé, caught in a serious personal predicament of seeming little significance in the grand scheme of things. Just one throwaway information bit. 
The ancient law called for the death penalty when a woman committed adultery. By rabbinic practice over the centuries, that penalty had been reduced to divorce and public disgrace in Joseph's day. And Matthew reports that Joseph was a, quote, righteous man, unquote, meaning he wanted to protect Mary from humiliation while still getting out of the marriage. He didn't want to impose an unnecessary hardship on her. And then a surprising thing happened. Certainly he could exert his rights as the aggrieved party, but Joseph chose another way, the way of trust and love. And in response to a dream, we're told, he takes Mary as his wife, after all, and receives her child as his own. In a sense, he adopts Jesus. This was a small act in comparison to the size of the decisions within the purview of Caesar or Herod the king, but an act that changed the world nevertheless. Interesting, isn't it? This juxtaposition of the large, supposedly consequential decisions among the world's power brokers and the decision of a simple, humble man caught in a personal dilemma. And then the way the story has it, discovering that God was not cavorting in human affairs on the scale of the Caesar, but in the birth of a single, seemingly illegitimate child. You know, friends, this is one of the reasons the story has hung around as long as it has. This revelation that, well, the world's powerful, gyrating egos... While the world's powerful gyrating egos play out their dreams and dramas, holding populations hostage to their whimsies, God slips in to reveal how real power manifests in the world. Think uh, Clinton and Trump and Putin. As opposed to, say, one of the families in our El Nido program up in Washington Heights. Here's our tradition's point of view on the matter. This bit of information is a whale of a lot more important than other bits. Miss this bit from among all the other bombarding bits, and you'll miss a whole mess of other really important stuff. Our tradition would go so far as to say you'll miss what it means to be human in the highest and best sense. The equivalent of a car accident does it were while texting. In Joseph, we have the character of the story who is most like us, I think. It's easy to imagine him trying to get to sleep after learning about his fiancée's pregnancy, spent, exhausted from anger, frustration and humiliation, grappling with his conscience, tossing and turning in the night. And in his restlessness, a dream angel whispers in his ear. Victimized by circumstance beyond his control, Joseph is presented with a variation of life he would not have chosen for himself. 
He had planned something else. Trapped by his options, yet surprisingly wanting to do the right thing. Barbara Brown Taylor suggests the whispering angel says something like this. Joseph, don't be afraid. God is here. It may not be the life you had planned, but God will be born here if you permit it. So Joseph does the unexpected thing. On the face of it, he takes the more difficult path, the narrow road. As his son will describe it about 30 years later, Joseph will take Mary's predicament on himself and together they will give birth to love and to hope and even joy. Joy to the world we will soon sing. Probably... I was thinking about it this week, probably 25 years ago now. I was speaking with a young man about important life stage decisions. And at one point he mentioned to me that he would, was embarrassed to, to tell me a little discipline he had tried to include as part of his decision making. It's a very little thing he, he said, but sometimes when I think of it, I ask myself the question, are you ready to accept joy in your life? And then he produced a well-folded piece of paper from his pocket with that question neatly printed. He kept it in his pocket as a reminder, he said. And he added, you know, the funny thing is that once you ask that question, are you ready to accept joy, it's very, very hard to answer No, I don't think so. Not today. He said this reminded him to ask God to bless whatever endeavor he was engaged in or in whatever circumstance confounded him. And you know, he had an unusual spiritual innocence, wise beyond his years. In that little exchange, I found a complete sermon that I've remembered ever since. To ask the question, are you ready to accept joy, is to slip into Joseph's skin for a moment. And considering his circumstance, doesn't it seem an odd question to ask? How could he expect to find joy when it seems he's been taken advantage of, when his honor has been damaged, his plan so disrupted, his love seemingly betrayed? But this led him to certain decisions, difficult decisions that welcome joy into the world. And you know, friends, sadly, we do not speak much about joy in our daily lives. I wonder if we consider it an actual option for us as an available and natural way of living. Perhaps we're too sophisticated or too cynical or just simply too distracted to consider joy an actual option. It almost sounds surreal, doesn't it? Importantly, our ancient stories reveal that joy does not exist in some pristine alternative universe separate from the travails and struggles of our lives. Instead, they reveal that joy comes Whenever we're 
able to disarm ourselves enough to honestly welcome God into our world, into our life, into our explicit experience. Now again, here at the end, my perspective is that this information is among the most important that you're going to receive this December. What I just said. You're welcome to disagree with me, of course. But I would ask you not to leave here today without hearing the simple thing. Gosh, this sounds funny to say, but I even have to say it. Some information really is really more important than other information. Just as some food is more nutritious than other food. You know, friends, it it really does matter what we think about in the day and dream about at night. It really matters. Doesn't that sound revolutionary? Like Joseph, I tell you, the meaning of our lives hangs in the balance.